The Siege of Leningrad, Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 12. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm podcasting to you today from the unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin people. So here we are again talking about the Eastern Front, the main event of the Second World War. And uh, last two episodes I talked about the action in the far north of Russia called Operation Silver Fox, where three German divisions tried to cross the Tundra and the Taiga and capture the Arctic port of Murmansk, that critical link in the Lendley supply to the USSR from the West. And um, now uh, we're going to look back to the main action further south. But to really understand this, you have to understand what happened in the, in the far north. So if you haven't listened to those two episodes yet, uh, please go back and listen to them before I spoil the ending. The Germans failed. They lost. 10,300 killed or wounded, more than a third of the total sent to that operation. I ended episode 11, the previous one, by saying that to understand the impact of the Finnish forces on the Eastern Front as a whole, we have to move from the far north a little farther south, or actually a lot farther south, from the shores of the Arctic Ocean to the main event from the Baltic to the Black Seas. So now, let's take a closer look at the Leningrad Front. Here is where most of the Finnish forces are fighting in what they call the Continuation War. And to understand the Continuation War, we have to go back just a little bit to the Winter War. Okay, so the Winter War was the war fought between the USSR and Finland starting in November 1939 up to March 1940. There is a bonus episode coming for supporters of the show uh, soon on this particular uh, event kind of prelude to the Second World War. Anyway, in November 1939, less than two months after the USSR and Nazi Germany participated or collaborated in the fourth partition of Poland, uh, the USSR invaded Finland. And the USSR had a, as you can imagine, much greater army by several measures, by several factors. But for the first couple months, the Finns absolutely savaged the Soviets. Until finally, the Soviets brought overwhelming numbers of men, tanks, and other equipment. Up to twice as many soldiers as the Finns had. Some 760,000 men compared to the Finns 300,000. And more than 6,000 tanks compared to the Finns 32. Yes, that's 3-2. 32 tanks. And the Soviets brought 
3,880 aircraft against the 114 of the Finnish Air Force. After four months, the Treaty of Moscow ended the war. The Finns, in this course, suffered 25,904 soldiers dead or missing, over 43,000 wounded, and another 1,000 captured, out of a population of under 4 million. They also lost 20 to 30 of their 32 tanks, as well as 62 of their 114 aircraft. The Soviets lost roughly five to eight times as many fighters, officers, and equipment. Where the Finns lost under 26,000 dead and missing, the Soviets lost 167,976. Another 200,000 were listed as wounded or sick, and that included many, many cases of frostbite where the Finns lost nearly all their 32 tanks. The Soviets lost 3,000. Where the Finns lost 62 aircraft, the Soviets lost 515. These numbers are partly recorded, partly documented, and partly best estimates because the Soviets weren't exactly uh, anxious to share their losses accurately. Anyway, the upshot of this after all these losses is Finland also lost 9% of its total territory to the USSR. This included the city of Vipuri on the Gulf of Finland, which the Soviets called, and still the Russians still call Vyborg. Until 1940, it was Finland's second largest city. The Finns also lost area in Lapland and the Ribachi Peninsula in the Barents Sea in the far north. And that would become the scene of some fighting, as I described in episode 10. So the Finns, uh, by 1940, or the summer of 1940, were caught between the Soviet rock and a Nazi hard place. They feared another invasion, rightly so, from the uh, USSR. Uh, and because of that, they reluctantly agreed to support Germany in order to, well, to protect themselves. And as we heard in episode 10, the Finns uh, supported Nazi Germany in its attack and uh, uh, successful conquest of the Petsamo slash Pechenga nickel mines in the far north. That was the uh, first days of Operation Reindeer, the first phase of Operation Silver Fox. So uh, speaking of which, uh, Operation Reindeer... Uh, that first phase of Arctic Fox, began on the same day as the great Operation Barbarossa. That is, June 22nd, 1941. In uh, the early days of Operation Barbarossa, as you'll recall, Army Group North made the fastest advances of the three main thrusts into the USSR. One unit of Army Group North, in fact, made 90 kilometers on the first day. Also on that first day, for some reason, the Red Air Force, while the Germans are smashing through their lines, the Red Air Force bombed Finland. Go figure. But three days later, so June 25th, 1941, 
the Red Air Force launched a major air raid attacking several Finnish cities. Although the USSR claimed it was attacking military targets, it hit a lot of civilian targets. Uh, remind you of anything that's happening a little bit later, say in 2022? This uh, gave the Finns the justification for declaring a defensive war. No one was surprised. It was a chance that for the Finns, after all, to regain the land they had lost in the Winter War. And they were being attacked. Some 500,000 volunteered for the Finnish armed forces. Yes, 500,000, half a million out of a total population of less than 4 million. That's one out of every eight people in Finland. They were organized then into uh, 14 divisions and three brigades. And those were further organized into the second corps in the Karelian Isthmus. Uh, they included seven divisions uh, and one brigade. The army of Karelia, a little bit further north, seven divisions as well, including the German 163rd Infantry Division, plus three independent brigades. The 6th and 7th Corps and another group, again, a little bit further north than that. And in the Kainu region, which is a bit further north, uh, sort of midway between Karelia and uh, the town of Sala in Lapland, uh, the, was the 14th Division. So you can see all this in Map 1 on the website and in the show notes. Finally, there was the Finnish 3rd Corps, fighting alongside the German 36th Corps in Operation Arctic Fox farther north in the Sala area. Its objective was to penetrate into the USSR and break or seize the Murmansk Railway from Murmansk to Leningrad. A raid against them was the Soviet Northern Front, also close to half a million soldiers, in 18 divisions and 40 battalions. But on June 22nd, when the Germans attacked, the best units were necessarily redeployed further south to face the, uh, in great futility actually, the German uh, Army Group North, which was coming up from the southwest across the Baltic states. Uh, this left the 23rd Red Army in the Karelia Isthmus the 7th Army in Ladoga, Karelia, that area between Lakes Ladoga and Onega, and the 14th Army in Lapland, that area between the cities of Sala and Murmansk. And the commander of the Leningrad and the Northern Front, so this area immediately around Leningrad, was Marshal of the Soviet Union, Kliment Voroshilov. Remember that name. So, as I've covered uh, in previous episodes from the very beginning of this podcast, starting on June 22nd, the German Army Group North advanced very fast, the fastest of the uh, three main army groups, um, all the way up to Leningrad, their main target from the very beginning. But along the way, they suffered heavy losses. By the time they were approaching Leningrad in September 1941, they had lost 80,000 men dead. 
Now, as I covered in the last two episodes, the Finnish Third Corps, attached to the German 36th Corps in Lapland, started out uh, on June 29th. So one week after the launch of Operation Barbarossa, they uh, struck out across the taiga, heading for that all-important rail link between Murmansk and Leningrad. At first, they made good progress, particularly the Finns. But as I described last episode, the Germans were ultimately stymied by the Soviets and mostly by the taiga, that northern forest, the swamps, the marshes, the lack of roads. They never got near the Murmansk Railway. Uh, also on June 29th, so we're going to shift south again, the, began the first Finnish attack southwards along the Soviet border on the Karelian Isthmus. At the end of July came the Battle of Smolensk, when Hitler ordered Panzer Groups 2 and 3 to leave Army Group Center in order to support advances toward Kiev and Leningrad, respectively, halting their advance on Moscow. This turned out to be a fateful decision. But it, as far as the North goes, it gave von Lieb, uh, Marshal Lieb, commander of Army Group North, more resources, which he needed given his losses. How did the Soviets respond? Well, at first, uh, pretty rationally. In July, they began rationing uh, food. At first, workers got 800 grams of bread a day, less for office workers and dependents. But for people who were doing physical labor, they got 800 grams of bread a day, which is nearly two pounds, plus 2.2 kilograms or about five pounds of meat per month. They also had plenty of other foods, cereals, sugars, fats. In July, restaurants in Leningrad were still open, and the wealthier, that is military and party officials, could still get crab and caviar and other delicacies. And, of course, unlimited amounts of vodka. It's still Russia, after all. Now, on August 7th, Army Group North reached Riga, the capital of Latvia, and captured it. And at the same time, another unit reached the south shore of the Gulf of Finland. This split the Soviet defenses, uh, uh, isolating a group um, on the Gulf from the city of Leningrad. A week later, August 12th, Hitler ordered the encirclement of Leningrad. This would allow the, or the idea was that they would cut off the city and the Germans would link up with the Finns who were coming down from the north. At that point, the Germans would bomb, shell, and starve the city through the winter rather than fighting house to house. This was a major decision, a major change in the war and in the objectives. Rather than fighting, the idea was to besiege Leningrad, starve it to death, and then level it. In order to carry out these orders, uh, Field Marshal Lieb sent the 39th Motorized Corps northeast to capture the towns of Tikvin and Volkov, which you can see on the maps on the website. And there, from there to link up on the, far, the eastern side of Lake Ladoga with the Finns. This would complete the encirclement of Leningrad, cutting off its last land route for supplies. On August 25th, 
the Germans captured the town of Chudovo, cutting the main, the main rail line between Moscow and Leningrad. At this point, uh, Leningrad officials telegrammed Moscow asking for emergency food supplies. Their proposed route would take uh, food by rail to uh, Lake Ladoga and then on barges along the Neva River, which flows from the lake through Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, to the Gulf of Finland. However, by the time this was worked out, the Germans had reached the south bank of the Neva. That destroyed this plan. On August 30th, the Germans took the town of Mga, which is close to Leningrad, but it's also a major rail hub. See it on map 3. On September 2nd, the bread rations in Leningrad were cut from 800 grams to 600 grams, so a pound and less than a pound and a half. On September 4th, German shells began falling on Leningrad. Starting on September 6th, the Luftwaffe began saturation bombing of the city. On the 8th, a huge wave of, or wave after wave actually, several waves of Junkers bombers dropped thousands of incendiary bombs, setting fire to warehouses that stored the, foods, the food supply of the city. Leningrad's entire supply of sugar 2,500 tons melted and flowed into cellars. After it solidified, it was chipped off and sold as a kind of candy, anything for calories. On September 8th, the Germans captured the town of Schlüsselburg on the south shore of Lake Ladoga. This was really beginning the ultimate strangling of the city. As you can imagine, this was a serious development, so serious that Marshal Voroshilov, commander of the Northern Front and the defense of Leningrad, did not dare report it to Stalin for fear of his wrath. Stalin still heard about it from an intercepted German signal. His response was to sack Voroshilov and send instead uh, Georgi Zhukov, the hero of the Soviet Union. So um, Stalin called uh, Zhukov into his office and asked him to head to the front. Zhukov said, wherever you say, comrade Stalin, which front? Leningrad, you have to straighten it out. The situation is very serious. This began the heroic, the legendary defense of Leningrad. Zhukov uh, took off immediately. He took two junior, well, not junior, but two uh, trusted uh, generals with him and flew to Leningrad. And the situation was indeed dire. As his plane landed, it was harassed by two Messerschmitts. This annoyed Zhukov, as you can imagine. Still, when he approached uh, Voroshilov's headquarters, uh, conveniently located in one of the more ornate palaces of Leningrad or of St. Petersburg, he had to wait outside to be vetted, had to make sure who he was. Orders are orders, after all, especially in the Soviet Union. When he was finally admitted to Voroshilov's presence, he handed the man a handwritten note from Stalin, which read simply, quote, 
hand over the command of the front to Zhukov and fly to Moscow immediately, end quote. Voroshilov complied, didn't argue. There was no point. He was sure he'd be shot. But Stalin let him off pretty easily. They had been old cronies since the days of the Civil War. In 1953, in fact, Klement Voroshilov became chairman of the Presidium of the Soviet Union after Stalin's death. Meanwhile, back to uh, 1941. Meanwhile, as this, all this is going on, the Finns have been advancing pretty steadily from the north and pretty quickly. The idea was that they were going to get close enough to Leningrad to threaten it, to tie down Soviet forces in defending that northern side, which would make it easier for the Germans to attack from the south. You don't have to actually capture a city to threaten it, as we can see in 2022. So beginning in July, the Finns moved into the Karelian Isthmus. God, I hate having to say Isthmus. Why are there so many Isthmuses in this war? Anyway, sorry. Okay. July 10th, the Finnish Karelian army launched its offensive, reaching the northern shores of Lake Ladoga and pushing farther around the eastern edge and penetrating into the area between the Great Lakes of Ladoga and Onega. By July 17th, the Finns had reached the pre-Winter War borders with the USSR in Karelia. In other words, they had now retaken everything that they had lost in 1940. In the Karelian Isthmus, there it is again. The Finnish Second Corps launched its offensive on July 31st, pushing quickly into the area that was now controlled by the Soviet Union and encircling three Soviet divisions against the northwestern coast of Lake Ladoga. They prefer to use uh, what they called moti. These are small encirclements compared to the huge cauldrons or the huge encirclements that we saw the Germans create around Vyazma and Bryansk. The Finnish Fourth Corps also advanced toward the city of Viborg or Vipuri and captured it on August 23rd. By September, 20, by September 2nd, sorry, the Finns had reached the pre-Winter War border on the Isthmus and kept going, stopping only 19 miles or 30 kilometers from the city of Leningrad itself. So they were very close, but they stopped. Despite appeals, pressure from Hitler and the other Germans, they did not attempt to take the city. This is according to a book called Finland at War, by Philip Jowett and Brent Snodgrass. Quote, Finland's main war aims have been achieved. Its offensive on the Karelian Isthmus, stopping at the old pre-1939 border, just west of Leningrad. To the east, between Lakes Ladoga and Onega, the Finns have crossed the old border and advanced as far as the River Svir, linking the southern ends of the two Great Lakes. With the former Soviet-controlled East Karelia in their hands, the Finns established defensive positions. Marshal Mannerheim and President Riti decide not to continue the advance towards the White Sea. The U.S. threatens to declare war if the Finns take the Soviet port of Archangel, which would stop the flow of lend-lease supplies. In other words, the Finns had no intention and no interest in going any farther, 
and they also had no benefit to gain. The Finnish commander-in-chief of the military, Baron Mannerheim, uh, halted Finnish offensive operations and expressed no desire to advance into Leningrad facing the bunkers, the trenches, the artillery positions, the minefields, and the barbed wire. Just refused to go any further, no matter what the Germans said. In fact, another uh, factor in all of this is extensive diplomatic pressure from the West, specifically the United States and the United Kingdom. On, on December 6th, so this is just before the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United Kingdom declared formal war on Finland as an ally of the USSR. So now we can say that this is the beginning of the siege of Leningrad, the 900 days. Let's take a short break here. I need a coffee. And before this is done, you may need a good shot of vodka. Welcome back to episode 12 of Beyond Barbarossa. Now we're going to focus on the, the star of this episode, the city of Leningrad, the Soviet Union's second largest city. Before the war, it had a population of over 3 million. In the first 12 weeks after the German attack, about half a million people were evacuated, especially children and older people. But of course, this effort encountered a lot of bureaucratic fuck-ups. For example, thousands of children were loaded onto trains to take them to Pskov or Novgorod. In other words, closer to the advancing Germans. Even when German shells began destroying railroads and trains, the Leningrad authorities kept sending kids by train. Other times, trains would pull away from Leningrad full of seniors and children, only to halt on the tracks a few miles away for hours or days before returning. Of course, many people were determined not to leave their city. City officials said, well, this is propaganda. But the propaganda went, quote, our people are ready to dig trenches right up to the front line, but they don't want to leave Leningrad, end quote. But really, as some who applied for permission to evacuate, such as Jewish families, were arrested and imprisoned, for, quote, spreading false rumors that, that the Germans would take the city, end quote. So those people who did remain were put to work building defenses, such as trenches, tank traps, and bunkers. The Leningrad Communist Party leader, Andrei Zhdanov, this is the guy who had gone on vacation for six weeks on the Black Sea just before Barbarossa launched. Yes, him. He announced that the whole population would be trained in street fighting and throwing grenades. The city placed demolition charges under every bridge, every factory, every institution, and in all the ships in the Baltic fleet in the port. So they were ready for stubborn defense, but they did not anticipate a siege. When the city was almost completely encircled by early December, food rations were cut, 
again, from 600 grams of bread to 500 grams, and then more cuts came as the siege tightened and continued. The bombing also continued. It became a daily routine. One survivor described his daily commute to work, quote, one has to get off the trolley car three or four times to take cover in the trenches, hallways, or shelters. We prepared, but did anyone think that it would be like this? End quote. Police enforced a 10 p.m. curfew and patrolled for enemy agents and the many black marketers. In addition to bombs, the Luftwaffe dropped leaflets promising to spare Leningraders who killed their leaders and surrendered to the Germans. Few people picked them up, though, because anyone found with one of them by the police could be shot. On September 17th, Zhukov ordered that any retreat in Leningrad would be treated as a crime punishable by death. But there's no evidence he ever carried any of those out. By mid-September, Hitler had another change of mind. I would say change of heart, but there's little evidence he had one of those. Panzers began moving south again for the resumed assault on Moscow, Operation Typhoon, which we covered in episodes 8 and 9. In Leningrad, the destruction from the air raids and the artillery bombardments was the greatest in modern history. The siege of Leningrad brought about the greatest loss of life in a modern city. The Nazis also looted art collections and old imperial palaces, destroyed the Peterhof Palace, the Catherine Palace, Gatchina, and many other historic sites. As the bombing campaign hit a crescendo in September 1941, the situation for the citizens of Leningrad was getting worse. The Germans took more area south and east of the city, while the Finns held their positions to the north and northwest. Finally, there is only one way to get supplies into the city. This is across Lake Ladoga itself. It was a long, circuitous, and slow route. The barges across the lake brought 450 tons of food a day to Leningrad. Sounds like a lot, and it is. It's a lot of food. But remember, this is a city of 3 million people who need more than 1,000 tons of food every day. So, rations were cut again and again. They got down to as low as 125 calories per person per day. This is about one slice of bread. So, not only were the rations worse than starvation, uh, the measures taken to enforce them got more and more draconian. Citizens had to produce identity papers to prove they were really entitled to get their food rations. Any offense related to ration cards or to forging ration cards or cheating on them became a capital crime. There was a story of one woman who had worked in the printing shop that produced the ration cards was found to be carrying a hundred of them. She was shot on the spot. People got desperate. Young people started robbing seniors of their bread on the way out of the bakeries. To make it worse, the winter of 1941 to 42 was the coldest in decades. And while it's credited often and somewhat erroneously as the reason the Germans 
failed in their advance on the USSR. The winter was brutal for both sides. With lower temperatures, people need more calories just to stay alive. It did have another side, though. Lake Ladoga froze, and that actually helped because it meant that food could be loaded onto sledges and dragged across the ice, and when the ice got thick enough, trucks could cross. So this allowed the Soviets to increase the amount of food coming every day into the city. Still, it wasn't enough. The officials and the people of Leningrad got creative in finding nourishment of some kind. For example, wallpaper paste was made into soup. Grain that had been uh, on ships that were sunk by the Germans in the bottom of the harbor was brought up by divers. And even though the taste was foul, it was slightly better than nothing. Others added sawdust to dough to make more bread. People were given horse and cattle feed. And then they started cooking cats and dogs and rats and even crows. And then dead people. As people starved, some of the survivors turned to cannibalism, as happens in every mass starvation. How massive was this starvation? By the end of the siege, at the end of those 900 days in 1944, nearly three quarters of a million people starved to death in Leningrad. Deaths peaked in January and February 1942 at 100,000 per month. That's 35 times the number of people who died in the London Blitz. It's four times the number of people who died in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. Not that I'm trying to minimize those terrible events, those tragic tolls in human life. But what the point I'm trying to make is the difference in scale between the Eastern Front and the other theaters of the Second World War. Think about it. One siege starved to death three-quarters of a million people, more than a quarter to a third of the population of a major city, gone, starved to death. Think about the cities that you know of that have 750,000 residents. For example, when I moved to Ottawa, that was the total population. And just imagine that, all those people dead of starvation. This is also in addition to those who were killed by the fighting and the bombing. In total, up to 1,500,000 people were killed in Leningrad between 1941 and 1944. A major city erased. Now, when the weather warmed in 1942 in spring and summer, that brought some relief to the city. The following winter, 42 to 43, was not as harsh. And the death, toll, the death toll started to decline, partly because there were fewer mouths to feed and partly because by 1943, the Soviets managed to build a road through the dense forest and lay a railroad along that. However, it wasn't until 1944 that the Germans began to retreat. 900 days later, 
for Leningrad's torture to end. 900 days that became an enduring symbol to be manipulated by the communists for decades to come to justify all sorts of oppression. Even up to this day, the Great Patriotic War is a short form for the Russians to refer to the eternal ex existential threat to their land from the West, or so they say. But all that is for a far future episode, maybe even a different podcast. So that means it's a good place to end this episode. So thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war and the events of this episode, take a look at the maps and the photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca and in the show notes. You can also listen to the full episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all of you who have supported the podcast through Patreon or through other means. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. Or if you just have a comment or a suggestion or a question, reach me by email at contact at writtenword.ca or contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>